Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a celebration lunch at one of London's most perennially popular restaurants, seafood specialist Scott's, answer a short but profound question about salad in Ask Hugel, and Lake District Delicacy Grassmere Gingerbread is my treat of the week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've eaten at recently, a takeaway, or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. For all that I absolutely love talking about restaurants and particularly love recommending great ones, one question I always slightly dread being asked, and which I'm asked a lot, is what my favourite restaurant is. The problem, you see, is that I genuinely don't have a single favourite restaurant that I think stands head and shoulders above any other. In the same way as I have several people I call my best friend, I have several favourite restaurants suited to particular occasions or cuisines – My favourite restaurant for a celebration, or a date with Dave, or Italian, or tacos, say. But a handful of restaurants rate as favourites by virtue of the fact that I return to them again and again, to the extent that I lose count of the number of times I've visited, and go not for any particular criterion or for a dish that I can't get anywhere else, but simply because I know that I will have a good time, eat well, and leave happy. One such restaurant is Scott's on Mount Street in Mayfair, which I first visited almost exactly 10 years ago, and have been back to at least a couple of times a year ever since. There's been a grand, if slightly fusty, seafood restaurant on this site since 1967, but everything changed in 2007 when Scott's was acquired by Caprice Holdings, the restaurant group owned by Richard Caring, comprising landmark London restaurants like The Ivy, Jay Shiki and Le Caprice, from which the group takes its name. Given a makeover by Uber interior designer Martin Brudnitsky, which kept the classic wood panelling but jazzed it up with statement art pieces by the likes of Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin, and added a vast eye-catching marble seafood altar in the middle of the room, Scott's went seemingly overnight from being somewhere Mayfair dowagers might go for unchallenging but unimpeachable seafood, to one of the capital's most fashionable and hard-to-get-into restaurants. But unlike a lot of fashionable and hard-to-get-into restaurants where the food is passable at best and very much secondary to seeing and being seen, at Scott's the food was and is outstandingly good, which coupled with what I think is some of the best service anywhere in London, transforms every meal eaten there into an unforgettable experience. My most recent visit was for the very happy occasion of celebrating my second wedding anniversary. In our nearly six years together, poor Dave had somehow never been able to join me on any of my other visits to Scott's, so I thought it was about time he had the pleasure. Booked in for a sociably late 1.30pm lunch slot, Dave and I took our seats in a spacious corner booth and got started with a glass of champagne while trying not to fill up on too much of the two types of delicious bread and salty butter that were brought as we considered the menu. 
Now, about that menu. As I've said, Scott's is first and foremost a seafood restaurant, serving traditional classic fish dishes like the whole Dover sole they're most famous for, excellent oysters, platters of fruits de mer and roasted shellfish. But there are also some more contemporary dishes with European and Japanese influences like mixed sashimi, tempura prawns and squid a la plancha. Carnivores and vegetarians are also exceptionally well catered for, so don't let not being a fan of seafood put you off. There really is something at Scott's for everyone. Dave and I kicked off with half a dozen Dorset rock oysters, six plump deep-shelled specimens served simply with a muslin-wrapped lemon half, shallot vinegar and Tabasco sauce. Then for starters, Dave ordered the tempura prawns with spicy cocktail sauce, and I chose smoked Devon eel with a horseradish croquette and green apple remoulade. While my starter was generous, five fat slices of eel wonderfully paired with the crunchy croquette and creamy coarse remoulade, I'd forgotten from previous visits just what a whopper of a portion the tempura prawns is. With six huge tail-on prawns encased in rustlingly crisp tempura batter, served with a pot of liptinglingly spicy sauce, this is probably enough for two to share, and thankfully Dave did just that, so I was able to enjoy some of his starter as well as my own. Although for my main course I almost always order a Scots classic, pan-fried slip soles with lemon caper butter, this time I decided to try the fish of the day, which was lemon sole. Simply grilled and served with just a lemon half, this really was Scots in a nutshell. Superb, sustainable fish, perfectly cooked, elegantly served. But as so often, that simplicity is deceptive. The woefully under-seasoned, disappointing lemon sole I ate recently in a high-profile new opening, whose blushes I'll spare by not naming them, just goes to show that there's nothing simple about getting simple food right. Dave Sid sea bass with lemon and herb butter, served like my lemon sole on the bone, although you can ask for it off, was equally excellent. All we needed to add was some wonderful chunky chips and a lovely medley of tarragon-buttered summer vegetables, which included peas, broad beans, radishes and pea shoots. It being our anniversary, we had to have puddings, and I'm glad we left room for them, because they were a real highlight of the meal. My peach melba was a showstopper, as well as all the traditional elements of Auguste Escoffier's 19th century invention, that's peaches, raspberry sauce and vanilla ice cream, Scott's version also included a cleverly constructed chocolate shell, decorated to look like a real peach and filled with a feather-like fruit mousse. Dave chose Bakewell pudding with almond praline ice cream, a substantial individual tart which he was very pleased with. Two very thoughtful touches completed our delightful anniversary lunch. With our coffees, we were brought a plate of putty four with happy anniversary piped on it. Then just as we were leaving, one of the managers who'd asked what our plans for the rest of the day were, brought us a box of Scott's handmade truffles to have with the film we'd said we were planning on watching later. Earlier in the meal, another manager who'd spotted me dabbing at a spot on my t-shirt where I'd dropped something down it swooped in with a flask of soda water and a clean napkin as if by magic. It's this kind of service which elevates Scots to so much more than just a great restaurant. It's cosseting, warm, luxurious, buzzy, and, if these things matter to you, still very fashionable, somewhere that going to still carries a real cachet despite there being many newer restaurants to choose from. It's no wonder that alongside tables enjoying meals with multiple courses, there are families, friends and solo diners who treat Scots like you would a local cafe, albeit a very grand one, popping in for just the Dover sole, sparkling water and a cappuccino, as the two immaculately blow-dried ladies on the table next to ours did, and being in and out in an hour. Now, as you've probably deduced, perfection doesn't come cheap, and the bill at Scots always elicits a short, sharp intake of breath. 
our lunch for two, admittedly with champagne, oysters and a very good bottle of wine, came to about £280. There are some cheaper dishes on the menu. Starters start at £10.50, mains at £22. But even a conservative spend per head on food alone is likely to be around £65. But I can honestly say that I've never left Scots feeling that I'd not had great value for money, whatever I'd spent, nor that there was anything at all about the meal that I would have changed or improved. This visit was no exception. I genuinely don't think restaurants come much better than Scots. And while I might not be able to say that it's my one favourite restaurant, it's got a stronger claim than just about anywhere else to be. For all information, visit scots, that's S-C-O-T-T-S, dash restaurant, dot com. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes, once again, from Helena in Norfolk, who, as her fellow regular listener might recall, happens to be my sister. She writes, Hey Hugel, why is salad? A short but profound question there, calling into question as it does the very existence of salad. Now, to give my other listeners some context, Helena has got to the age of 48, having almost entirely avoided the consumption of salad. If it's a garnish, she'll ask not to have it, or more likely offload it onto my plate. As an optional side dish, she'll dodge it, preferring a hot vegetable or carb of some sort. And don't even try to persuade her of the merits of salad as a meal in itself. Like my husband, who, to be fair, is very much a fan of salad as part of a meal, Helena cannot be persuaded that a cause consisting solely of salad could ever fill you up. Helena enjoys food, and indeed is a fantastic cook, and is usually up for trying almost anything. Except, it seems, for poor old salad, of which, as her question tells us, she just doesn't see the point. Why is salad indeed? To answer this profound existential question, I think we first need to interrogate Helena's opposition to it. Why not salad? For many of us, especially those of us born in the 70s or 80s, there's a lingering misconception that all salads are broadly the same. Some kind of leaf, probably lettuce, some other vegetables chopped up and usually unpeeled, and perhaps, but not always, a dressing of some kind, probably from a bottle and usually quite sharp. Or it's possible that we still carry the trauma of that bastion of 80s and 90s dining, the salad bar, a fixture of pizza chains and family-friendly carveries, unlimited visits to which were touted as a selling point, but in reality offered nothing more than a chance to pile your plate high with an uninspiring selection of wilting veg and the occasional protein that even occasional replenishment couldn't guarantee the freshness of. It's no wonder that a lot of people were turned off the idea of salad for life by it. And let's not dwell on those horrible fridge-cold little tubs of salad you find in supermarkets, chemists and petrol stations, the putatively healthy option when grabbing a meal deal, which usually taste of absolutely nothing and are often bulked out with pasta, which, love it as I do hot, I think is utterly depressing cold. But Helena, salad is so much more than sad leaves and sadder dressing, and there is so much more to salad than just cold vegetables. As well as the most familiar style of leaf salads, there are chopped salads, bound salads, where all the ingredients are held together by a thick, usually creamy dressing, and some where protein, like cheese or meat, are as much a part of it as the vegetables, and in some cases even more so. My favourite salad, and I really had to think about this, is the simple peppery salad I like to serve with roast chicken, lamb chops and steak. I take a bag of shop-bought watercress spinach and rocket salad, 
dress it with good olive oil and red wine vinegar, add some sliced spring onions, and finish it with torn anchovy fillet and a little of the oil from the can or jar. I season that with mould and salt and black pepper, then toss it with my hands to make sure all the leaves are coated in the emulsified dressing. It's easy, delicious, and really wonderful with the meats I've mentioned. I also love cob salad, a bed of chopped leaves, something crispy like iceberg lettuce or heart of romaine, topped with cooked chicken breast, bacon, tomato, avocado and blue cheese, dressed in a red wine vinaigrette. It's similar to chef's salad or chopped salad, the latter of which does away with blue cheese in favour of cheddar, and usually uses cubed ham instead of bacon. These all make a substantial meal, yes, really, and while they can be a bit of a faff to prepare, especially the chopped salad which requires, the clues in the name, chopping all the ingredients to a uniform size, they really are a joy to eat. If it's salad leaves that put you off, and in fairness to you Helena, sometimes even leaves picked fresh from the ground can offer very little by way of taste or texture, then why not try some of the salads that stew them all together? I asked my Twitter followers what their favourite salads were, and interestingly two of the top three didn't involve leaves at all. The first was Greek salad, that classic combination of tomato, feta cheese, cucumber and black olives, dressed in olive oil and herbs, that, whether eaten in Mykonos or Middlesbrough, always seems to evoke sunshine holidays. I had a Greek salad as my starter at the Charming Garden Cafe at the Garden Museum in Lambeth only recently, and it was wonderful. The other was Somtam, the thrillingly spicy, zingy Thai salad of shredded unripe papaya, bird's eye chilies, carrot and green beans, dressed with fish sauce, lime juice and sugar and topped with crushed peanuts, which I always have to order as part of any Thai meal. The next most popular salad among my followers, and another favourite of mine, was Caesar salad, that lovely combination of, as a minimum, crisp leaves, croutons, parmesan and a creamy, tangy, garlicky dressing. You can add anchovies, I like lots of anchovies, and cold roast chicken, or even prawns, although personally I don't think prawns work particularly well with Caesar dressing. One respondent touted a veggie version using corn strips, which I think sounds great, and most people who hailed Caesar as their favourite salad agreed that it's one of the rare exceptions where shop-bought versions, which come in easy kit form, are generally pretty decent. I received so many responses that I could fill an entire episode just listing them. As it is, I've pinned the tweet to my profile, at HRWrite, so that anyone can have a look at the replies and hopefully be inspired. There are some amazing suggestions in there. So to answer your question, Helena, why is salad? Salad is because it's great. To say you don't like salad is a bit like saying you don't like food. There are so many varieties of it that you can't possibly dislike all of them. You just haven't found the ones you like yet. I hope I've persuaded you to give salad a chance, Helena. But if I haven't, well, you can carry on just scraping it onto my plate as before. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwrite or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, Each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week it's a Lake District delicacy with a particularly personal connection, Grasmere gingerbread. There are many reasons to visit Grasmere, a tiny and especially beautiful village in the Lake District which shares its name with its neighbouring lake. Home at one time to both William and Dorothy Wordsworth, 
both of whom are buried there if graves are your thing. Grasmere offers much in the way of scenic walks, riverside cafes, tea rooms, including my favourite, Baldry's, chic boutiques and historically important churches. But for my money, the best reason to visit Grasmere is to buy, still warm from the oven, delicious Grasmere gingerbread, sold to this day from the same house where it was invented by cook Sarah Nelson in 1854. Now, if you're thinking, gingerbread, I can get that anywhere. Well, you're wrong. Because while, of course, ordinary gingerbread, the likes of which gingerbread people are made of, can indeed be found anywhere, Grasmere gingerbread is far from ordinary. The recipe, like for so many unique speciality foods, is a closely guarded secret, but the result is something that in texture is what I can only describe as being somewhere between a biscuit, a crumbly cake and flapjack, notwithstanding that it doesn't actually contain oats. The taste is unique too. Neither overly sweet nor excessively spicy, it manages to be both of those in every mouthful. Of course there's ginger in the recipe, but there must be other spices too, perhaps nutmeg, maybe even a little clove, to give it its wonderful flavour and aroma. And oh, that aroma. As you approach the cream and green house built in the 17th century that houses the shop and bakery, the first thing you'll notice is the divine aroma of Grasmere gingerbread wafting from the ovens. And just to warn you, probably the second thing you'll notice is the queue, Even pre-Covid, the tiny size of the shop meant that you would often have to queue outside for your freshly baked gingerbread. But don't let that put you off. This is one speciality that is well worth the wait. If you don't want to eat your gingerbread straight away, or are buying it as a gift, it can be gently warmed in the oven later on, and is just as wonderful eaten that way. It's not just the gingerbread itself that's exquisite, it's beautifully packaged too, wrapped in blue and white greaseproof paper bearing the legend None Genuine Without Trademark, and tied with string, much as Sarah Nelson herself would have wrapped it in 1854. It's not exaggerating to say that buying a parcel of Grasmere gingerbread connects you not only with the Lake District, but with history. Now, speaking of connections, I said there was a particularly personal connection to Grasmere gingerbread, And it's that, for my wedding to Dave two years ago, my mother-in-law Steph arranged wedding favours for our guests of a slab of Grasmere gingerbread each, which we put in everyone's place setting as their gift from the Cumbrian side of the family. So, as well as being a delicious, unique product with a fascinating history, Sarah Nelson's Grasmere gingerbread will always remind me of the happiest day of my life. And there aren't many things you can say that about, are there? To find out more, plan a visit, or to order Grasmere gingerbread and the many other local speciality foods sold in the shop online, visit Grasmere gingerbread, that's G-R-A-S-M-E-R-E gingerbread.co.uk. Just before I go, I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. And I hope you'll join me next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food.